Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. <laughs> it's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. Hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? Ben Kissel here. I hope you enjoy this interview with Ben Westhoff. He's the author of a book, Fentanyl Inc. We talk about uh, the fentanyl crisis. Uh, How did it get here? How can we stop it? We really go into some great detail. Ben has lived a crazy life. He was an undercover reporter. He went into China and really risked his life uh, to get some of the information that he writes about in his book, Fentanyl Inc. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I hope uh, you learn something and hopefully we can try to save some lives. All right. Hail yourselves. Enjoy. Today I am honored to have with me. Uh, he was already on the he was already on the uh, the Patreon for his great book Original Gangsters, which was used when we did our Biggie and Tupac episodes for the last podcast on the left. But he is working on a new book, and it's called Fentanyl Inc. It'll be out, I believe, here in the in the spring. Um, and his name is Ben Westhoff. Thank you so much, Ben, for being here. Well, thanks, Ben, for having me. All right, so let's get into this, man, because obviously the opioid epidemic, it's massive, it's huge. Um, It's not really being talked about right now. It was on the tip of our tongues a couple of months ago, but as the news cycles go, uh, it is now on the back burner, and no one is discussing still one of the biggest drug epidemics of our time. Can you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the opioid epidemic and what, what is it doing to our country? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the people who have died from it, it's actually the biggest drug overdose crisis in the history of America, if not the world, you know, and and fentanyl is the biggest part of it. You know, I think a lot of people are aware of the heroin deaths and the prescription pill, the Oxycontin deaths, Mm -hmm. but fentanyl has actually surpassed both of those. And, um, in a lot of cities, especially in the East Coast and in the Midwest, you can't even really get heroin anymore that doesn't have fentanyl in it, you know, right. or it's now, very hard. This this term fentanyl, this new drug, uh, you know, it, it hasn't been uh, in our uh, culture for very long. Where the hell did this thing come from, fentanyl? When we're talking about, I believe um, there was just a famous singer who overdosed recently, and I think it was because of uh, of fentanyl. She was hospitalized. Demi Lovato. And now, of course, she is out of the hospital. When did fentanyl really hit the streets? And, and do you have any indication uh, through your research of like why it happened? Yeah, well, uh, Prince and Tom Petty both had fentanyl in their systems when they died, too. Oh, brutal. Um, but yeah, it was originally uh, created as a medical drug um, back in the early fi- in the early 60s 
And it's still mm. still widely used in hospitals and in patches. You know, it's for cancer patients and people with okay. extreme pain. But it started to be used illicitly on a really large scale only in the last, you know, 10 or so years. And it's only really started killing people mm. massively in the last, like, you know, three or four or five years. So where is it coming from? Is this all just uh, overprescribed medications and then those uh, overprescriptions are being sold on the black market? Wh wh where is because obviously we have we have Donald Trump who believes it's all coming from Mexico. He went to meet with uh, Duterte in the Philippines, came back with the idea for the death penalty uh, for individuals who sell drugs such as fentanyl. Where is all of these drugs? Where are they coming from? Well, they're actually all made in China. And, hmm. you know, this isn't the these actually aren't the prescription fentanyl that people are abusing. This is illicitly produced fentanyl made in kind of underground Chinese labs, mostly. And then it actually is sent to Mexico and it's the Mexican cartels who bring it into the U.S. Um, you know, Donald Trump has said a lot of a lot of silly and ridiculous things about the mm -hmm. opioid crisis. And one of them is that building a wall would stop it, which is mm -hmm. not true. The thing about fentanyl is it's tiny, you know, it only takes a, right. a pinhead amount to overdose on. And, you know, stuff like that, you can have a million doses in a, a tiny little, you know, dop kit. And so, right. the, you know, people don't, you know, building a wall wouldn't do anything. People smuggle them in through cars when they're crossing the border and underground tunnels and stuff like that. So why have the cartels taken such a liking for uh, to fentanyl? I mean, I would assume probably with the legalization of marijuana going, uh, you know, I think we have 20 states now where it's wh whether uh, it's legal recreationally or medically, that probably took a little hit out of their bottom line. Is it just about the money for them? Did they just find a new opportunity, a new market for this drug to make some cash? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the thing is, fentanyl is much more profitable than marijuana, than heroin, than meth, because it's so potent and because um, it can be made so cheaply. So mm. with heroin, you know, you need a whole field, you need to grow poppies, you need to process it. It's a very time-consuming and expensive process. But fentanyl right. can just be made in a lab, and you can get, you know, a whole kilo of it for just a few thousand dollars. So it's... Uh, much cheaper than heroin and, and much more potent, too. So when you were researching for the book, I assume you talked to some individuals who uh, maybe they had family members who overdosed or maybe they went through their own issues. Do you have any uh, stories that you could share with us right now about uh, some of the people that you met and interviewed with along the uh, along the research process for this new book? Yeah, I actually had a friend who died from a fentanyl overdose. Mm. Um, it involved the patch, actually, the prescription patch. And okay. he he got addicted to opioids. And uh, his name was Michael Schaefermeyer. And then one night mm. he was drinking and he had, you know, a patch on and it eventually and he died that night. Um, but so, uh, now that, so that was the medical patch that he had received from the hospital for treatment, or can you he, get these patches on the uh, on the black market too? Yeah, yep, you can get them on the black market, and um, and I'm fairly mm. certain that's how he got his. But uh, but yeah, a lot of the stories involve the dark web, 
and mm-hmm. there's an 18 year old kid named Bailey Hankey from Grand Forks, North Dakota, who mm. whose death in 2015 launched a whole international investigation. But his friends would would get this stuff off the dark web, and mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of people selling it. Um, and it's very easy just to have the stuff delivered directly to your door. Mm. Yeah. So if you're in North Dakota, which is the state that I was born in, by the way, it has more cows than people. That's true. Um, how, so if you're, you're in rural North Dakota, you want to get fentanyl, you find it, you literally just, you go on the dark web and you just order it and it just comes like an Amazon delivery package. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the, they send it in fake packages. Sometimes they'll send something that looks like a cleaner, like Ajax or something. And Mm -hmm. if you, if you looked at it, you really would think it was a package from Amazon. But if you're in the know, you open it up and, and it becomes clear. And, um, the stuff is just coming through the mail all the time. And it's, Mm. it's really hard to stop. So is there a demographic specifically uh, that is being hit by this? I know it's a lot, as you mentioned, with North Dakota, there's a lot of rural individuals uh, who are suffering. The opioid epidemic has taken out a lot of those people So in so-called Trump country, even though you know they're much more diverse uh, than just possibly being Trump supporters. Is there any demographic specifically uh, that you have seen that this fentanyl crisis, this opioid crisis, is really affecting? Yeah, it is affecting a lot of young people for sure, dark web savvy people. But I think in general, it's it's taking down a lot of longtime heroin addicts too. Mm. And these these are people who might have had a heroin addiction for you know five, ten, twenty years, and then right. they get they get one dose that has some fentanyl in it, and they die instantly. And um, you know that's that's a big part of this. Is there any way, is there, I know they have these like drug testing kits you can get online uh, and perhaps those will indicate if there's some fentanyl in it. Is there any other way to tell if you're taking a, uh, if you're doing heroin, if you're taking pure heroin or if you're taking this uh, heroin cut with fentanyl or should, should we all just assume at this point that it will be cut with fentanyl? Yeah, we de- You definitely should assume that. Um, and I do recommend the, the fentanyl test strips. There's one company in particular that makes them called Bunk Police who do mm. a really good job. But um, there's also another method um, wherein if you just, you know, you don't take the full shot. You just take like a, a third of the shot or a small part of the shot to, to get a sense of what you're getting before going all the way. And that could save lives. But I've heard that that's not as appealing to a lot of heroin users because, you know, they want the full rush of it right away. Right. And again, Fentanyl Inc., check out this book. As soon as it comes out, you got to buy it because, uh, uh, you know, this is just one of the biggest issues facing our country today. And once again, as I said up top, it needs to be talked about a hell of a lot more than it's being talked about because it's murdering our children. Is there anything uh, that was super surprising to you regarding this crisis? Yeah, I actually went to China and I infiltrated a couple of these drug operations. I pretended to be a buyer. And so I got to go inside of them. Yeah. And see the labs where they operate. And, um, you know, um, one of the, you know, in some of these places, they're fairly professional. You know, there Mm. were like 
giant mounds of of um, synthetic cannabinoids like K2 and spice and mm. different uh, fentanyl analogs being made. And the thing is that the the Chinese government has sort of said that they're interested in cracking down on this, but in a lot of ways, they're making the problem worse through all these various tax incentives to the to their chemical industry. And mm. a lot of the, these companies make legitimate chemicals and pharmaceutical products, but they also make the fentanyl ingredients and in, in some of these other drugs. And so the the Chinese government is sort of like encouraging this industry financially, you know, possibly without even realizing it. What was the reaction when uh, you were over there when it comes to fentanyl? Was it sort of that, did you get that vibe of those were individuals who did not do their product, who did not take their product, and uh, were they almost, were they aware of the death toll that is rising on a daily basis here in this country or like many pharmaceutical industries, perhaps completely uh, didn't care about it? Uh, almost nobody in China has even heard of fentanyl. Um, there, it's not widely used in that country at all. It's, there's very strange drug habits in China, like nobody smokes weed, but um, ketamine is one of the most popular drugs, along with heroin hmm. and meth. But um, as far as these companies go, they know what they're doing, absolutely. Um, they, they, they sometimes employ all these salespeople, these like young, cheery college graduates who have no right. idea what they're doing, you know, selling these chemicals. And I, I talked with a lot of them and they, um, they claimed like complete ignorance, sort of a don't ask, don't tell situation. Right. So they have these people, these, these people are actively marketing fentanyl to countries around the world. Yeah. Yep. That is, that is definitely happening. And, uh, this one, this huge company that I, I visited, they had like rows of cubicles, you know, hundreds and hundreds wow. of employees. And, um, they, they sell the, the fentanyl precursors, which are used to, to make the drugs. And they told me that they're the countries they sell most to are uh, Mexico and the U S and, um, you know, it's, wow. they're, they're selling it directly to the cartels. That's interesting because of course we all think about, you know, a scene out of breaking bad where a drug, uh, maker is is you know creating this stuff in their bathtub or whatever, but it seems like it's much more corporate than that. Yeah, it is in China. It definitely wow. is. It's um, you know it's all about the money there. It's less of a cartel sort of environment. So to take it into the context of like the war on drugs, I suppose um, it seems as if the Chinese government now is killing tens of thousands of Americans on a yearly basis. It, what is there? Is there any way uh, to retaliate against them uh, for these deaths? Well, yeah, that's it's a very complicated puzzle. You know, some people talk about it as kind of a reverse opium war. You know, mm -hmm. in the, the 19th century, the England's um, East India Company was selling opium to to china and the people there were addicted in large numbers and then hmm. the the opium wars were kind of to battling back against that and so now it's sort of like the reverse it's like china is supplying this this opioid to the west and um you know it's um it's kind of a kind of like global capitalism gone amok in a lot of ways and um 
Right. There's no there's no simple solution. China needs to work a lot harder, first of all, just to stop incentivizing it. But, um, you yeah. know, some people are worried that the Trump's trade war is sort of going to throw a wrench in in this uh, opioid um, discussion. And how would the trade war uh, throw a wrench in it? Well, you know, if China is sort of if, if we're sort of picking a fight with China on trade, they might be less likely to cooperate with us in terms of shutting right. these, these companies down. Sure, sure. So when it comes, let's go back to the states. That's absolutely fascinating. You never think about cubicles and and uh, pitch people and salespeople when it comes to uh, illegal drugs like fentanyl. But evidently, that's what's going on over there. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for that insight. That must have been horrifying for you going undercover there. I mean, this is you know I I understand the the relations between the U.S. and China aren't that tense or as tense as they used to be, but that still must have been quite uh, nerve wracking. Yeah, it really was. I um, had to sort of lie on my visa and say that I was there as a tourist and um, and then sort of hope I didn't get found out. But but another thing to, to recognize is that these drugs are still legal in China, a lot of them. So these, sure. these countries were operating legally in China. So, you know, that made it a little bit easier. Yeah, right. I mean, that's interesting. It's legal, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people are doing it maybe because they know the very, very dangerous side effects. Yeah, there's, you know, it's hard to say why the the opioid problem is biggest in the U.S. and Canada. And Mm -hmm. uh, in other parts of the world, it's not as big. And I think it might have something to do with the prescription pill, the overprescribing seems like it was here was most common. Well, that's that's a great uh, pivot point here. Let's come back to the States and talk about big pharmaceutical companies is there any um, uh, what insight do you have on their role in this entire epidemic? Obviously, they're going to say that people should just use these drugs as prescribed, all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, they are complicit in the overprescriptions, and they want to make money at the end of the day. Uh, so they're certainly willing to push their products. What's Big Pharma's role here in the states regarding this crisis? Well, the company that seems to have the most culpability is Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin. And Mm. they advertise their product as something that you couldn't get addicted to, more or less, you know? Yeah, right, right. And uh, even when their own research showed that like 13% of people were getting hooked, they published that it was less than 1% or something like that. And, um, you know, but it's a complicated problem. Like in 2010, they made it so their pills couldn't be crushed up easily and snorted or injected, right? And because that's what okay. that's what a lot of people were doing with OxyContin. They called it hillbilly heroin, and right, they, right. yeah, literally just crushed it up. So they made these pills so they couldn't be crushed up. But then the effect of that was people said, "Well, we can't crush these up anymore. We're just going to do heroin instead." And right. You know, it seems like um, there's been kind of this rush to curtail prescriptions from doctors, trying to make doctors prescribe opioids less. But if you take someone's opioids away, a lot of times that just turns them to street drugs like heroin and fentanyl. Yeah, and obviously with prescription drug prices going up and down on on uh, what seems to be a whim, I know a lot of people, as soon as heroin becomes cheaper, they go over to heroin and then vice versa. 
when it comes to big pharma, obviously we had the huge tobacco uh, trials back in the day. They were fined millions and millions of dollars. What do you think has to happen? Should we treat big pharma? Because I've said this for a long time. I think we got to start treating big pharma like we did big tobacco uh, back in the day and start holding them accountable. But they spend so much money, 40 million bucks a year spent on uh, lobbyists and just giving it to congressmen uh, and congresswomen. And, uh, you know, they are so ingrained in Washington right now and in our politics. Is there any way that you see happening in the near future that there is some repercussions uh, for the, uh, you know, propagating of the opioid crisis? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of momentum right now, actually, for um, the type of uh, lawsuit that you're talking about, uh, like the one against big tobacco. And a bunch of cities and states have gotten together and are suing these companies. And uh, the U.S. Justice Department has indicated that they're willing to be a part of it. So I think it's only a matter of time before the states get huge amounts of money, you know, billions of dollars um, from these companies. Yeah. So just going back uh, to some more of the case studies that you did, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, I'll drink my beers and I am certainly no uh, Puritan when it comes to drugs. But uh, when it comes to heroin and when it comes to fentanyl, at no point have I ever had the desire to really do it. Is there any uh, personality traits or just any any um, characteristic that, that we can point to and say, uh, this person might be more susceptible to doing something like heroin. Is there anything like that, or is it really just completely random? You know, that's a really good question. I'm sure that there might even be like a gene that makes people more sus- susceptible to highly addictive uh, behaviors and patterns like that. I, I don't really know enough about it, but, you know, I'm kind of like you, and I um, I always saw heroin as like, the line you do not cross you know what i mean yeah. and it just seems like it would be too good yeah i mean as soon as like all the the needles and uh it, it's just such a brutal uh such a brutal drug uh there's a great documentary warning this drug may kill you all on the opioid crisis i don't know if you've had a chance to see that but uh that was kind of one of the things uh, that that stood out to me was just like it, it seemed like it was you know mothers fathers sisters uh and brothers all across the board that got addicted to this is there and of course you know when we talk about get again uh you know hillbilly heroin or you know this is a drug affecting a lot of uh, rural areas it's a lot of you know coal miners or construction workers perhaps they get injured in the on the job and then they get addicted to opioids. And we hear that story time and time and time again. And it just seems so bizarre to me that history keeps on repeating itself. Yeah, it's it's really true. It is totally um, a case where a lot of just normal law-abiding citizens who probably didn't even smoke pot were prescribed right. this for things they didn't even need it for, you know, like a root canal or some sort of minor back pain. You know, these were drugs that were supposed to be prescribed for cancer or for like end of life situations. But um, there was just a new lawsuit filed against this company that made this uh, fentanyl nasal spray that's called. Oh, my God. Sabesis, Sabesis or something. But um, they they actually employed like strippers and like a woman who performs sexual favors for doctors who would prescribe this stuff, you know, and they would prescribe it for just any ailment. You stubbed your toe probably. And they're like, you know, here, have this nasal spray. And uh, it's insane the the link that these companies went. 
Well, it's it's very difficult uh, to be an erotic dancer. It, I, I understand. I couldn't do it. I would immediately break both of my ankles and probably a wrist or two. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. You mentioned marijuana, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on marijuana as a replacement for opioids uh, when it comes to, you know, medical marijuana or even recreational use. Do you think that marijuana is the key uh, to solving some of this epidemic? Well, not marijuana exactly, but um, I think something that's gaining a lot of speed of that people think is working is uh, called medication assisted treatment. And that's the use of uh, opioids like methadone. And there's another one called Subutex. And um, what those are, they are opioids, but they don't get you high the way that heroin and fentanyl does. So they're, they're administered by a doctor and they help you get through the symptoms of withdrawal So you can kind of get Mm. your life together, you know, and some people don't think this is a great solution because they're like, well, you're just substituting one drug for another drug. Right, right. But really, you know, people can live. It's not the the drug that kills you, you know, in in some countries um, like the Netherlands and Switzerland, the government will prescribe you heroin. The government pays for people's heroin if they're addicts. And, you know, you can survive until a ripe old age on on heroin or or these other opioids. It's just the other factors that kill you, you know, the dirty needles, the, um, you know, Mm -hmm. passing out in an alleyway and getting shanked, you know, like turning to prostitution to support your habit and getting an STD, you know, ultimately um, it's it's it would be the best case scenario, obviously, if we could get people to not be addicted to anything. But the next best case is, is these, um, you know, methadone and these other methods. Right, right. And of course, I mean, Gandalf, I believe he smoked opium every day and he's a wizard. So <laughs> it, it is OK for some people, but maybe uh, not all. When it comes to let's talk a little bit about that legalization. That's an interesting point uh, because I'm very conflicted on this notion. Obviously, uh, you, we have what happens in San Francisco right now. There's actually a map. Uh, that indicates where people have publicly urinated and pooped. Uh, it's the poop map of San Francisco. It's quite disgusting, despite the fact it's such a wealthy city and rents are extremely high. And then we had the situation, we had a chance uh, to go over to Vancouver, and we were we did our show on East Hastings Street in Vancouver, and heroin was basically legal there. They had a needle exchange program, things like that. And I got to say, man, it was the saddest street I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, there was one man who was just, or one woman rather, who was just digging her nails into the concrete. I don't know what she was searching for, but obviously her nails were breaking on the, uh, you know, on the rubble there. And everyone looked, I mean, it was really out of, you know, Resident Evil. No one looked happy. Uh, everyone seemed to be as, about as miserable as a human being can be. So what are some of the more reasonable solutions from total legalization to uh, complete incarceration? What do you think, through your research, is the best answer to solve 
um, or to uh, persuade people or dissuade people from using heroin? Well, um, kind of along the lines of what you said before, in Vancouver, things actually used to be a lot worse. And Vancouver is kind of a case study. You know, if you think it's bad now, um, but they got something that's called a supervised injection facility. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're a place where, you know, it's a clean hospital type environment where you're allowed to go and shoot your heroin and they provide you with clean needles. There's doctors and nurses overseeing it. You know, they're ready there with Narcan if someone overdoses. <clears throat> and sure. um, they, they don't have any of these in the U.S. Whenever they think about putting one in the U.S., the, you know, people throw, you know, throw a big fit and they don't have it. But in Vancouver, well, it's interesting because I know that they do offer that, and I think there's there's something to be said about that. But then the vast majority of people using heroin, they're just going to the hotels there, and and they're not going to these facilities. So how do you get? It, it's nice that they're there as an option, but then the real hardcore users, I mean, they're they're on they're they're, they're not going there. Yeah. Well, there are different ways to get people and you know, sometimes it's this medical assisted treatment like I was talking about where they they give people um the methadone and stuff and that sometimes draws people in. But yeah, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes they offer therapy. It's, you know, it's it's a difficult a thing to master, but you know, even getting free needles is, you know, maybe worth it. They, you know, I'm not an expert on it, but but you're right. It's it's a hard problem. Right, because of course you don't want to live in a world where you try to like condone it or make it seem like that's something that everyone does. Because again, it is very difficult um, to get off of the stuff once you're on the stuff, and uh, and certainly we don't like to see people suffering. What is that like, by the way? Do you have any insight on that? What it's what is withdrawals from heroin like? What I've heard is that it's like a really bad flu, basically. You know, it's not like. The end of the world. It's not like what, what's that movie um, where they they tie themselves to the bed and freak out. Um, anyway, Darren, that Darren Aronofsky movie. Re- Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. I've heard- oh my God, Requiem for that movie. Honestly, like I know movies, uh, they don't always have the best influence on people. But after I watched that movie, I think that was the one that I said, I don't. I think I'll skip on the heroin. <laughs> Because I don't need to be doing any, uh, you know, crazy butt stuff in front of a bunch of billionaires. I, you know, I, I think I'm all right. I don't need my arm falling off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I've heard that it's it's like a really bad flu. You know, it's not it's maybe not the end of the world, but it's just a miserable, miserable way to be. And if you can take yourself out of that, you know, why wouldn't you? you know people say they can't get up to go, go to the work in the morning. They can't play with their kids. It's right. just, um, you know, it's just like that. Yeah, yeah. We're um, going back to uh, your friend, uh, who I'm so sorry that he passed away. Were his? What was his react, or what was the reaction uh, when he overdosed in the community? Was the community stunned that it could happen there, or uh, you know, I know I have a lot of friends in South Florida or from South Florida, and oxycontin overdoses are so common now; it almost has become. Uh, not shocking whatsoever. What was the reaction when your friend passed away? Were people stunned that it could happen there? Yeah, definitely people were. This was before the opioid epidemic was even really a thing. This was, you know, a few years back. And so, um, you know, people just, and he was so young. It's just like a shocking thing. When I was coming up, you know, people didn't die of 
drug overdoses so much as they just had really bad experiences and then they went to rehab or they, you know, were throwing up and it was awful. But people just right. dying like that at a young age, it's just it's really insane. So we have this guy, Attorney uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Obviously, uh, what he's doing right now with, uh, you know, the militarization of ICE and all these things that are happening um, are pretty abhorrent. He wants to crack down on legal marijuana. Is there anything that the DEA, uh, is there anything that Jeff Sessions is doing right now that is like mildly proactive or is basically the entire U.S. policy at this point just incarceration, incarceration with zero rehabilitation? Well, what Jeff Sessions has said is that they're going to crack down on the dealers harder than ever, but they're not going to crack down on the individual users. And so, you know, this is a little bit of a progressive shift since, you know, the days of the crack epidemic and things like that. And so so that's good. But the problem is that Mm. in reality, these aren't like, you know, drug, the fentanyl dealers, the heroin dealers aren't usually like these giant kingpins. You know, they're just addicts themselves who got into dealing to support their habits. And so when you say, you know, you're really cracking down on the dealers, like the Mm. the dealers and the addicts are the same people, you know. Interesting. Yeah. And what do you think as far as, you know, it's funny, you mentioned crack cocaine and obviously that spurred, uh, spawned the war on drugs, which is why, you know, we had 350,000 folks in prison in like 1979. Now we're at around 2.5 million. Uh, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, W, Obama, even to some degree. No one stopped it. You know, everyone uh, loves our, uh, they love their, they love having folks incarcerated for their bottom line. They make a lot of cash off it. Geo Group and Core Civic. Do you think it is a different approach? Then the war on drugs regarding the crack epidemic, which was just incarcerate. And now, obviously, we have a situation where African-Americans uh, predominantly use crack. Now we have a situation with opioids that is very diverse. A lot of white folks using it. Do you think there's any racial disparity when it comes to uh, no? I, I do not want people incarcerated for drugs. But do you think there's any racial disparity when it comes to the um, enforcement of the epidemics? Yeah, I mean, there's the the racial politics of it all is definitely a big factor, and I think, I think when it comes down to it, the people who are making these decisions, you know, the judges, the politicians, the police, a lot of these the influential people tend to be white, and now they're seeing people they know, you know, their own families, mm-hmm. members who are who are dying from the opioid crisis. And that has really made them think differently, you know, and they say, well, right. it really could happen to anyone. My kid wasn't a bad kid. So mm-hmm. he, he needs to, you know, should be treated like, uh, like someone who's addicted and not like a criminal, you know, and it's, and you know, right. it's, a, it's a shame that there's this sort of racial attitude towards it. But ultimately I think it's, it's a good thing that this is happening and that it will, it will apply to other drugs as well. You know what I mean? And so, I was in mm-hmm. Grand, Grand Forks, North Dakota, and they talked about how the the opioid response, you know, as you know, North Dakota is one of the most conservative states in the country, but yep. um, they've had a really progressive response to the opioid epidemic, and it's spilling into other things, too. And they were saying, like, now even alcoholics are being seen as people who have a real problem, you know, and we should treat it like an addiction. So, Well, what are some of the things uh, that they're doing in North Dakota that makes their policy more progressive regarding taking on this epidemic? 
Well, the um, these test strips, like we were talking about, they're starting to distribute these in the community. They're doing this uh, medication-assisted treatment. They're, you know, they're, uh, Grand Forks is such a small place. They don't even have any any doctors who do this, but they passed a new law that said you can communicate with doctors on like a Skype sort of system to get these mm -hmm. drugs. You know, they have stuff like the, um, they amended the Good Samaritan law. So now you can't be thrown in jail if you um, call the, you know, call the first responders to help someone who overdosed. You know what I oh, mean? Oh, okay. Right, yeah, right. that's that's really helpful because a lot of people just, if their friend overdoses, they freak out and they're like, I don't want to go to jail myself. So they just, they, they drop them off in front of the hospital. They just drop the body off yeah. in front of the hospital and speed away. So, right. um, yeah, those are, those are some of the kind of things. And it, it is really heartening to see that it sort of cuts across, um, political lines, a lot of this stuff. And there's, and also the, the other big thing is Narcan, which is the, the drug that reduces, that reverses opioid overdose it's like a miracle drug really and mm -hmm. um and so that this drug is starting to become more available a lot of communities are um are paying for it and uh distributing it so that's that's really helpful now is narcan can you get that over the counter or is yeah. that another prescription yeah you can get it over the counter so that does seem like something that everyone should just kind of have on hand. And I would assume most schools and things like that have it on hand now as well. Well, it's it's slow, but yeah, definitely firemen, first responders, police, um, all sorts of people. Even like places like Philadelphia and the restaurants, they were getting people passing out in bathrooms and stuff like that. So they keep it on hand. Yeah, definitely. Right. You know, when it comes to uh, just the the youth, uh, the youth. I'm so I'm just I'm I just turned 37, so now I have to say the words. When it comes to the youth, <laughs> by law, I am forced to say that. It seems like it's very difficult right now to be young. Uh, I know it always is difficult, but it seems more so than ever. Suicide rates, they say they're up 25. Uh, percent Do you think that this um, this desire for escapism, just the culture that we have right now, has it played sort of perfectly into the hands of, uh, the, of the feeling of euphoria that heroin gives? It's so difficult uh, to, uh, to navigate this new reality for so many people. Do you think that that has played into um, why heroin has become so popular just from a cultural perspective? Well, personally, I blame social media, but, um, you know, that's that's another type of heroin, I guess. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, the, little, the little drip of Twitter, tweet, tweet, tweet. Yeah. I completely agree. And it's leaving everybody uh, with uh, uh, in, in, in a um, zombie like condition. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I don't know why this is, is seized hold, but I do agree that, you know, there's people are just having trouble coping with uh, the way things are. And, you know, it's a cycle, I guess, in society. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you know, I'm just, it's one of those, this this subject is very uh, near to me uh, because I think, you know, a heart goes out to these people who really are victims of, uh, of a crisis. And uh, it just seems like it's going to be so difficult. Do you, do you see any way in the future... Uh, of of just kind of turning the tide here. We had 60k dead last year. The numbers are supposed to go up. I just feel like every single solution is taking a Dixie cup to a sinking boat, and uh, you know, and trying to get the water out. But it's almost impossible. 
Do you think in the near future we're going to start seeing a, the tide change a little bit and turn and start saving some lives? Well, unfortunately, I think it is still going to get worse before it gets better. And I think in the U.S., we're not really embracing the progressive solutions, you know. I mean, like in Europe, they don't have a problem with these new drugs, you know. And by new, my, my whole book is about um, not just fentanyl, but these new drugs like like K2 and spice and mm-hmm. and what these drugs are is that they're they're replacements for traditional drugs you know like ecstasy marijuana heroin these are all drugs that you know in LSD for example like LSD and marijuana are the two safest drugs you know no one has ever died from either of these and uh even ecstasy if it is if it's real MDMA is safe is relatively safe Mm-hmm. Um, but all these new drugs are um, are people are taking them because they have easier access to them and they're cheaper. And in countries like Spain and Portugal, where there's decriminalization, people use the regular drugs. They smoke weed. You know, they they even use heroin, um, which is which is preferable to fentanyl and you know, right. it's 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 a tricky thing to advocate for for legalization, especially of these hard drugs. But the you know the war on drugs, it's just more and more of a resounding failure. There's no other way to right. It. Yeah, absolutely. Fentanyl Inc. Get this book when it comes out. It is a it's going to be a must read. Uh, thank you so much for being here, man. And uh, I don't know. I guess we should end on something positive. Um, so don't do it. Don't do fentanyl. That's what I'd say. Uh, yes. Maybe that's it. Is, is that the, uh, <laughs> that's the overall theme, I think. Yeah. I mean, that, I think, yeah, if it's just a matter of doing it, not doing it, I'd say just not do it. You know, Not do it. That's yeah. right. Um, if I can make one, one more plug, I'm not on social media, so it's hard to sort of keep track, but my website is benwestoff.com and you can sign up for my little mailing list. This is something straight out of the year 1997, but, uh, I love it. That way I'll I'll put you in touch with, uh, and just Googling my name, Ben Westoff is the easiest way to find it. Yes. Ben Westoff, Google it. A pony will show up at your door. It'll (laughs) deliver you a package, uh, going old school with it. I think that that's awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm barely on, I'm barely on the social media. I like Instagram because I like the Insta stories. And then I can, I can talk to people, yeah, which is nice. kind of fun. Um, all right, everyone. Ben Westhoff, Fentanyl Inc. Check this book out. Thanks so much for being here, brother. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Ben. All right. There it was. My interview with Ben Westhoff. Very smart fellow. Hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget, buy his book, Fentanyl Inc. The man risked his life to tell us the truth about what's going on with fentanyl thank you all so much for listening thank you all so much for supporting the show and never forget hail yourselves we'll talk to you soon this show is made possible by listeners like you thanks to our ad sponsors you can support our shows by supporting them for more shows like the one you just listened to go to lastpodcastnetwork.com you